Now chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. When Paul says in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, he is, of course, saying that Timothy is young, young compared to Paul at least. It's likely that he's about 30 to 35 years old. Paul, when he's about to die in 2 Timothy, he, he does say that he's uh, about to die because he, he thinks that um, no one stood with him and that whatever happens, the Lord will deliver him from every evil deed and bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul is cognizant of the fact that he's going to die in 2 Timothy. That is likely his last letter. So at that point, it is about 60 or 65 years old that Paul died. If that's the case, he calls himself the aged in Philemon verse 9. If he calls himself the aged in Philemon verse 9, and he were about 60, 65 years old, then Timothy, who would have been a couple of decades presumably younger than Paul, would have been about 30, maximum 40 years old. This is what he means by, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Let no one look down on it. They should not look down on it because Timothy, though he is young, in comparison to Paul, though he is young, his speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity will dominate. That's why he is in the ministry. That's why he is uh, qualified to be a faithful preacher and teacher of the Bible. His speech, his conduct, the way he lives, the love he shows toward God and towards others, the faith he has, how strong he is in believing the faith, and then also the pure life and lips that he leads. By that means, he is qualified. And because he's qualified, no one should downgrade the ministry of Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. They shouldn't just look at your youthfulness and ignore your conduct, your life. In fact, your youthfulness should be an example to them because you have both youth, youthfulness and godliness. When the two are together, notice verse 12, show yourself an example of those who believe. Show your, yourself an, as an example of those who believe. A true believer looks like this. You are the visible, personal example to your people of what a true believer is. You are an example. Those who are younger than you should say, I want to be like Timothy. Those who are older than you should also say, although I'm 50 or 60 years old, I wish at the age of 30 I were living the Christian life the way Timothy is living. 
He should be an example in that way. Not to put focus on him, but that he becomes a tangible, real example to people that God's power can be at work even in a young man. A young man can be changed, converted, transformed by the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the uh, gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1, 16 and 17. It is this gospel that has been at work in Timothy, and therefore his youthfulness is not to be used against him. Because on the other hand, he has the other virtues that show what a true believer is. 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul hopes to meet Timothy, but in the meantime, Timothy should not be dependent on Paul. Timothy should not be dependent on Paul, but be faithful in his ministry and do what he's supposed to do in his own life and ministry. Yes, it's good to have Paul there, but he should not depend on Paul. He has to press on. He should give attention to the public reading of Scripture. The NASB says public reading of Scripture. The word in the original text is simply the reading. Some take this as the NASB to be public reading. Read in your worship. Read in your services to the church. Read Scripture because the Scripture reading should be the focus of the service. The Scripture reading, the exhortation, which, which includes encouragement and admonishment. The, the word exhortation means encouragement and admonishment. We have an example of this word in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Bear with this word of exhortation. Well, if, if you've read Hebrews lately, you know that Hebrews has a lot of theology and a lot of warnings. There is some encouragement there too. However, it is heavily filled with theology and warnings. It also includes encouragement. An exhortation is an exhortation to believe that which is true and right and good before God to be warned about turning away from anything that is said and to live a life faithful to God. That's what an exhortation is. When, when the scripture is read publicly, that's the kind of exhortation that should be presented. We ought to know God more, ought to be encouraged in knowing God more, and warned about turning away from God. And teaching. Teaching that which is sound, true. As he said in first uh, or in Titus one verse nine, that the minister should be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He ought to adhere to the teaching, the the teaching, the apostolic teaching given. He ought to adhere to it and explain it. Another way to interpret verse thirteen is to interpret it as the private reading. The older interpreters. And translations simply say the reading, and they mean the private reading. Timothy should not neglect his own walk with God, his private reading, so that 
based on his private reading and study and meditation prayers on the scripture, then he becomes equipped to exhort and to teach. Otherwise, if he's not doing so privately, he's useless publicly. He's worthless. If he's not in the word privately, he's useless and worthless publicly. An example of this would be Ezra. In Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra sought God's word or studied God's word privately. He practiced it himself and then he taught God's word to the people. Either way, we have biblical precedent that the scriptures ought to be our focus privately and publicly, and then publicly, people need to be exhorted and taught in the true way. Verse 14. 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery, or elders, the council of elders, laid hands on Timothy, and there was a prophetic utterance delivered. And this is how his spiritual gift, whatever the gift is that he has in mind here, was endowed to Timothy. Timothy knows that. There were eyewitnesses there. It was miraculous. It was divine. And Timothy has that gift. He's being reminded that he has the gift, not only that he has it, through qualified witnesses, but he also needs to employ it. He has the gift that he must employ. He should not smother it. He should not set it aside and ignore it. He has to employ it. He needs to obey. What spiritual gift he has, he must obey. He must do what God has given him to do. Whatever, in other words, whatever he has should not be dormant. It should be active. Not passive, but active and energetic in doing the will of God. How important is this? 15 and 16. How important is all of this that he's been saying? Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. It should be all-consuming. We should be absorbed in these truths, in these realities. We ought to take pains with them. Even though it hurts, even though there's a struggle, even though there's opposition, even though there's warfare and fights that go on, we need to take pains with this. Press on, move on, so that your progress may be evident to all. It's important for the progress to be evident to all. That all the people around who hear They need to see progress. They need to see a change in your life. This is what he mentioned earlier in verse 12. Show yourself an example of those who believe, so that your progress may be evident to all. It's good and right for us to have progress in the Christian life. This is the way that ensures us that we're saved and ensures others what true salvation actually is. It helps them to see it. John 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The progress that is evident to all is for the sake of the rest to see, and to be assured, and to glorify God. 
This is the work of God in his life and in our life too. Verse 16, he presses on on how important this is. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. It's good for us to consider all of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Pay close attention. It has to be. It has to be this way. Take pains with these things. Pay close attention to everything about us to evaluate these things according to Scripture. Does the Bible actually allow for my thoughts to be in this direction, for my words to be in that direction, for me to do this activity, to be associated with these people, to do whatever, whatever it is, pay close attention. Don't ignore it. Not only oneself, but also the teaching. What are we saying? What are we teaching? Are we making sure that whatever we teach is according to Scripture, is accurate? Or do we just flippantly say something and make it spiritual and say it's biblical? Do we casually do so? He's saying to Timothy, no, pay close attention to your teaching. Because one thing you say, one thing you say wrongly that contradicts Scripture might lead people in this passage to forbid marriage, abstain from foods, or anything else that is a sin against God. And he's mentioned other sins throughout this letter. Be careful with your teaching. Persevere in these things. Persevere. Persevere until the end. Make progress. Just as you have been following, continue to follow. Be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed, absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention. Persevere in these things. It's necessary to persevere until the end. Not to live the Christian life for a day, a week, a month, a year, or ten years. No. Live the Christian life until the very end. Until our death or when we see Christ at His return. Persevere until the very end. Why is all this important and necessary? For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. If he does all this, he'll ensure salvation both for himself and for those who hear him, those who listen. He will ensure salvation. By ensuring salvation, he means what Jesus meant when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, He who endures until the end shall be saved. It is he who shall be saved. 24, 13. When he says endure or, or ensure salvation, he says, as he says, uh, he means what he says, Paul says in Romans 2, Romans 2, verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing goods seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first, 
and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. The Bible in Romans 2, 1 Timothy 4, James chapter 2, James 2, 14 to 26, faith without works is dead. The Bible is showing that it's necessary to demonstrate that we truly believe. If we demonstrate, we actually show that we truly believe, it gives us assurance that we're on the right path. It ensures that we are on the right path. And it helps others to know that they are on the right path. It's, it's this important because it's for our salvation and for the salvation who hear us. Back to verse 12 and a few things we can learn from this passage. In verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. We know from Genesis, Genesis chapter 37, that Joseph was 17 years old. He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And it was at age 30, according to Genesis 41, that he stood before Pharaoh and became the second ruler of the land. From ages 17 to 30, he was also a young man, but he was a godly young man. He persevered under duress, under uh, intense affliction. He persevered. It's possible for a young man to be godly. Samuel, Samuel the prophet and priest, he was also brought uh, or taken by his mother into the tabernacle so that he might be there with the priests and all who serve at a young age. After he was weaned, he was taken there and they cared for him. And he grew up being a godly man from his youth. Another example is King Josiah. King Josiah became king at age 18 and then later in his teenage years Josiah heard the word of God, he repented of his sins and he called on the whole nation to repent of their sins while he was still a teenager and king over the land. It is possible to be godly, though young. One more example we can use is Elihu. Elihu was younger than his friends. Elihu, the friend of Job, Job had three friends. And in chapter 32, Job 32, Elihu says, I waited, I listened patiently, but now I'm about to burst. I have to say something because I heard what all you older men have said, and it's all useless. You didn't help Job. Now let me speak. So then he speaks for a few chapters in Job 32 to 37. He speaks and gives his advice. And his advice was not rebuked by God by chapter 42. The three friends were rebuked, but Elihu was not rebuked by God. Elihu was younger than his three friends. But what is the key? What is the key? What is the key that we need to observe? that we're not observing. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That's what we're not observing. We're taking the young man because he's available. We're taking the young man because he's naturally gifted. Or we might baptize his gift and say he has a spiritual gift and say, okay, he's qualified. We might take a young man because he is a graduate. He's a theological graduate. Though he's only 21, 22 years old, or 25, 26 years old, because he's a graduate and he's got a degree, therefore he's qualified. And that's what we mainly need. 
We don't look at his, his character, his virtues. We don't look at his spiritual life, his speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. In fact, the way that we become qualified and become better than older men was also said in Psalm 119, 100. I understand more than the aged, for I have observed your precepts. How could Joseph, Samuel, Josiah, and even Elihu and Timothy here, or Titus in Titus 2, 6-8, Titus was also a young man, how could any of them be better? Because they showed their understanding by how they lived. They lived a godly life as youth. Therefore, they were qualified. Now, what happens today, though, according to verse 12, there are many who say that youth are qualified because 1 Timothy 4.12 says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Period. They don't quote the rest of the verse. They don't, they don't quote the rest of the verse that says the youth is qualified only if his speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity are manifest, if they're evident, if you know, if you have assurance. But if you don't, then the youth is not qualified. For that matter, neither is the aged man qualified. If the old man doesn't have these qualities, according to 1 Timothy 3, he can't serve either. As well, how is it possible for, let's say, somebody to come to Christ at age 17 and become the youth pastor at age 18? Or even a pastor at age 19 or 20? Which is not... Uh, unheard of either. How is it possible for someone who converts at age 17 and becomes a pastor at, at age 20? How could that be? Because 1 Timothy 3 verse 4 1 Timothy 3 4 says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He cannot be a new convert. In fact, it assumes that the regular candidate chosen to be pastor is one who manages his own household well. Well, he's only 20 years old. He's not even married. We can't see. We don't know. And he's a new convert. He has to learn many, many things about the Bible before he can preach and teach them accurately. He hasn't been paying attention to his own life long enough <clears throat> He's got to pay attention longer. Therefore, we need to recover the biblical standards. Not the worldly standards, not the academic standards, not the pragmatic standards of the world, but the biblical standards. And verses 13 and 14 carry out our Christian life accordingly. We need to be engrossed in the Bible. Be absorbed in the Bible. Be nourished in the Bible. This has been lost. We have a lot of illiteracy. Not only do people graduate from school, high school, without being able to read and write and compute simple math. That happens. It's widespread. They don't know anything about history. They don't know anything. That's true. But what's worse than that is them not knowing the Bible. Though I gave to him 10,000 precepts of my law, yet they are regarded as a strange thing. 
Hosea 8.10. We have to recover the Bible. We have to know what's in the Bible. Otherwise, we have no discernment. No discernment. Hebrews 5.11-14 actually says that we ought to mature by being fed by the word of righteousness. The mature are feasting on the word of righteousness and who by their um, senses, by exercise, by practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Only then can the minister or the parishioner be able to exhort and teach properly. Only then can he pay close attention to himself and to his teaching. If he doesn't have an objective standard, God's objective standard to live, how can he do anything? How can he know anything? And as, as well, verse 14, spiritual gift. If we belong to Christ, we have spiritual gifts which must be used. Spiritual gifts must be used, so we need to be active in using them. Not flaunting them and not burying them, but using them. Humbly using them. Don't neglect them. That means we have to be together. How can one use a spiritual gift if it's not benefiting the body of Christ? The body of Christ must be benefited. The, being alone, being isolated, being an individual, saying I'm a Christian but showing up a, only a couple of times a year to church is not being a true Christian. He's neglecting, if he is a believer, neglecting the spiritual gift. In fact, he shows he's not a believer because he has no concern for his spiritual gift to be benefiting others. Lastly, verse 16. This reminds us about what we said earlier. There are many people who say that all of this has nothing to do with salvation. We don't need to worry about it. Let's not be uptight about making sure our doctrine is in order, our theology is in order. We don't need to make sure we understand Scripture. We don't need to consult Scripture for everything because we're already saved. We already believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's all we need to know. Let's move on now with life. Let's go and do other things. There's no need to press on. Or, even with the theology, that we can have differences of opinion on theology and morality, and they take it to the nth degree. They take that position to the nth degree, and they say, practically nothing has to do with salvation. Even the, the discussion or the study of salvation is not a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of salvation. Well, how can we say that? We're talking about salvation. How can salvation and the true understanding of salvation have nothing to do with salvation? In this chapter, he's talking about marriage and foods, which he says if we misunderstand those things, we don't have assurance of salvation. We have fallen away from the faith. We have to recover knowledge of the scriptures and realize that these are matters of life and death. He's going to bring up another one in chapter 5 on how to care for the poor, the widows, which he also makes a matter of salvation. He makes the proper care of widows a matter of salvation. If you properly care for widows, it shows you're saved. If you don't, it shows you're unsaved. You have denied the faith. Notice, he says, 5.8, 1 
1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How can he be a Christian if he does not care for his own widowed family member, his own mother or grandmother? If he doesn't care for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That sounds to me, he's considering that a matter of life and death, salvation or punishment. That's the way we have to recover biblical teaching. These are matters of salvation. They are matters of life and death. Let's not relegate them to obscurity and then therefore to disobedience that we don't need to believe or understand any of it. We need to understand. Understand because it does relate to a proper understanding of the gospel.